morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass Working your fingers right down to the bone Cooking the lunch room ready to sell You're lucky if you can find a seat You're fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books She but the teacher don't know how mean she looks My name is Lainey Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of Schools, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM or WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, at the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. During the next hour, we'll be talking with Chad Marlowe student privacy expert of the American Civil Liberties Union about what schools, parents, and especially ed tech companies should be doing to protect student privacy with the rapid move towards online learning during the coronavirus pandemic. But first, I'd like to update you on the latest education news. The DOE finally released mortality data showing nearly 50 teachers, school aides, administrators, and other school staff have died from the virus. The DOE also proposed a budget for next year that cuts school budgets by $100 million, which would likely cause class size increases. The mayor has said the schools should be closed until the end of the school year, but that next year will have to be the best year academically to make up for the problems this year. But that will be simply impossible if he cuts school budgets by $100 million. To the contrary, kids will need more support from their teachers and smaller classes to make up for the learning loss that occurred this year. There have been all sorts of problems with remote learning, including about 200,000 New York City students who haven't yet received their devices or access to the Internet. There's lots of concern about the quality of education kids are getting via remote learning, how engaged they are. What the research shows is that even with Um, equal access to devices and Internet, disadvantaged kids, kids with special needs, and English language learners do far worse with online learning than average kids. And there's lots of concern about the privacy of some of the commercial online programs that have been assigned. I'm the co-chair of the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy, and we're being bombarded with questions about various apps that that, uh, from parents that about the uh, the apps that their kids have been using. This brings us to Chad Marlowe, our guest from the ACLU. Are you there, Chad? I am. Thank you so much for being with us. First of all, how are you doing and your family? Well, I, I always feel like I give two responses. The first one is fine, and then when people say really, I say, huh, not so great. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to be caught inside. As you know, I have, I have two, uh, two kids uh, who, are, who are 11 and 7 in the New York City public school system, so you know, in addition to my traditional roles of being uh, a parent and, and a, uh, a policy expert at the ACLU, I am apparently also now, like many parents in the city, a school teacher, and it, it is a lot to take on. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved in student privacy at the ACLU? Sure. So 
Um, so my, my official uh, title at the ACLU is Senior uh, Advocacy and Policy Counsel. Uh, and the specific area <clears throat> I'm charged in working in, um, although it certainly bleeds over into others, is surveillance, privacy, and technology. And so very early on in my career with the ACLU, which started a little over five years ago, uh, uh, one of the areas, uh, uh, thanks in part to you, <laughs> uh, that, that popped up and started popping up more and more was issues around student privacy. And your advocacy with respect to In Bloom, I think, is, is can be largely credited with, with elevating that issue for, for parents and children and also advocates like myself. And so uh, it began a process that has been developing over the last five years of understanding that as, you know, schools move more and more away from kind of the traditional, you know, uh, chalk on a blackboard, uh, you know, principal records in a metal file cabinet type, um, you know, system of the 20th century into a technological one where more and more records are stored in the cloud, more and more classes are taught using technology both in the school uh, and at home. Um, a lot of issues around privacy came up because uh, these, the, the ed tech companies, which is short for educational technology, uh, do make money uh, by charging schools and parents uh, for access to their, their applications and their platforms, but also make money uh, by gathering student data and figuring out ways to monetize it either by selling that data to others or using that data to target parents and children uh, in an attempt to sell them more and more products. And so trying to stay ahead of that wave uh, has been kind of a, a, an, an ongoing challenge for, for the last five years in my, my career. Just, uh, yeah, thank you. Just a little bit of background about InBloom for our listeners who aren't aware of this. Um, we became aware um, about uh, five, six years ago about this uh, massive project of the Gates Foundation. Um, they were spending $100 million to create a, a nonprofit corporation that was called InBloom that would collect, store, and then share the personal student data um, of the students in nine states and districts around the country, um, disclose it to various ed tech companies to facilitate the spread of online learning across the country and also the analysis of student data for various purposes. And when we heard about this, New York was one of the states involved, we were very concerned because we had mistakenly thought that uh, national privacy laws like FERPA uh, required parental consent, and parents weren't even um, being told about this, no less asked for their consent. And um, we started writing about it, as did others, and every single state and district pulled out. And InBloom closed its doors in 2014. <clears throat> but in the process, what we learned was that FERPA had been rewritten twice by the U.S. Department of Education to, to facilitate the disclosure of student data without parental knowledge or consent to ed tech companies and other third parties, and that this was a trend that was happening um, elsewhere with other companies, that, that InBloom was only the tip of the iceberg. And um, so that's how we became involved in this issue. And as a result, lots of states have passed privacy laws. Many of those laws are not strong enough, however, and many of them, including in New York State, are not really being enforced. Um, with the move towards online learning, can you talk a little bit about how this really has accelerated 
um, the, 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 the offloading of student data to, into private hands and, and what the risks are involved in this. Yeah, and so, I mean, maybe the best way to describe it is kind of an analogy to the ocean, right? The, the, the waves that typically kind of come in um, have been new educational apps, new educational approaches, right? So one wave may be, you know, student information systems where student data is, is put onto the cloud where obviously, you know, there are privacy implications. The next wave can be certain uh, remote learning apps. The, 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 you know, the next wave can be, uh, uh, you know, student surveillance programs. But this COVID-19 crisis has set forth a tsunami. And what, what the tsunami is, is an emergency, which has accelerated the move towards remote learning, where, you know, ed tech companies that were attempting to penetrate the market have had an event occur that has really opened up the doors to very close to 100% market penetration. And so what I think looked two months ago uh, like a question for schools, you know, are we going to use this application? Are we going to use this platform? You know, what are its upsides? What are its negative externalities? Has now kind of come into a, we have no choice. What do you have? Let's roll it out. And, and I think that, you know, any sort of decision you make on using technology um, should, in a perfect world, be slow. So you can really consider the upsides and the downsides and the privacy implications. And what we are obviously doing in the last you know, five weeks or so has been anything but slow and deliberate. And so in that rush to try to give kids an opportunity to learn at home, and we could spend an entire program talking about the economics of why that is not really working in an equitable way, but in that rush, student privacy has by the kind of been kicked to the curb, uh, and that that is a, a significant mistake uh, in the opinion of the ACLU. So you recently wrote an excellent piece, which we will um, post online next to the program notes. Um, but I really, really um, encourage people to read it on the ACLU blog um, called Those Free Remote Learning Apps Have a High Cost, Your Students' Privacy, where you gave a number of pieces of advice and guidance, especially to the ed tech companies, about what they should be doing now, given this crisis and the rapid adoption of their programs. Can you talk a little bit about um, your advice? Yeah, sure. Uh, I do want to just highlight one point, though, which is, um, it is it is advice and it is targeted toward the ed tech companies, but it does go beyond that because there are certain companies that are kind of critical to remote learning that I wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, call an ed tech company. For example, what's called an ISP or an Internet service provider, which actually provides access to, to the Internet. They're not an ed tech company, but in this context are, are integral to actually students be able to remer learn remotely. So absolutely applies to ed tech companies, but it really applies to any company involved in enabling students to learn uh, remotely during the COVID crisis. So basically, there's, there's, there's four specific steps uh, <clears throat> that I think we all need to be doing collectively to protect student privacy right now, right? The first one, uh, very simple, which is to the extent that any of these companies out there are stepping up to the plate and offering uh, to give students access to, to, to free, uh, free remote learning platforms, 
hardware, software, Internet access. Uh, let's thank them and let's be grateful for the fact that they're stepping up. Uh, but, of course, there's a big asterisk after that, and those are the next three steps. The next step is we need to say to them that during this time where remote learning and the use of your hardware, software, or platforms really feels mandatory to students, because in essence, it essentially is with the closing of the schools. Those companies really need to curtail the information they collect on students. Generally speaking, these apps are designed to suck up as much personal information on our kids as they can. They don't really go so far as to distinguish what they're gathering because anything a student inputs into the database, be it information about themselves when they sign up to actually completing homework assignments, can get gathered up and analyzed. And so the first thing we say is these companies should not be gathering any information unless it is absolutely critical to the operation of their system. So, for example, we're not going to say that with a student you can't collect the information on what class they're in at school because you need that information in order to get them the proper learning, right? My, my kids are in second grade and fifth grade. It is important that these platforms know what grade they're in and what teacher they have so they can get the right assignments. But there's a lot of additional information that they traditionally will, will suck up and will analyze, and that has to stop. It has to full-out stop during this crisis. Beyond that, within this category also, is even the information that they gather right now that is essential to the operation of their system. So all of the data they gather during this crisis should be expunged when the crisis is over, permanently deleted. The one exception I would say to that is where there are parents out there who want to continue using these apps, if they want to go out when this crisis is over and make a very discreet clear request written in kind of common English, which is the fourth grade readability standard, and say to a parent, is it okay if we keep this information at a time when parents don't feel pressured to say yes or no, they can certainly do that if, if there's some sort of agreement. But in the absence of that, all of this information has to go. This is essentially a call on these companies to say this COVID crisis creates unprecedented business and profit opportunities for you off of these kids' data. You have to not take that opportunity. This healthcare crisis is not a business opportunity for you. It is a time for us to put the students' needs and their privacy first. So that means any data you get has to be deleted and you start from square one unless there's some separate agreement. The third step is has to do with a lot of these programs uh, either are designed as or have add-ons that are essentially surveillance mechanisms. Some of them are very specifically designed to be surveillance mechanisms, like, uh, like programs that will uh, do social media monitoring, will do keyword monitoring. So if a student enters a phrase that the school determines is problematic, they'll get alerted by it, and, and a variety of other things. Some are not quite as specific surveillance, but like there, there's a company called GoGuardian that allows teachers to remotely look at a student's screen on their computer anytime they want to, which obviously has a significant surveillance function. The third step is to call on these companies to separate out and to not include any surveillance add-ons that can be added into their program. And to the extent that they're already baked into the program, they should be disabled. 
because what students and families need right now is an opportunity to learn remotely, not a pathway to allow schools and governments and private companies to spy on them while they're sequestered at home. So, so that, that's the third step. This, this move to remote learning should not be a move towards remote surveillance of students and their families. And, and I want to be very clear that the reason I say students and their families is a lot of these programs don't discriminate. When a student loads it onto their home computer or home device or they're in a family that does not otherwise have access to this technology. So if a student receives a laptop, you know, the, the family may go on it so they can file for unemployment. They may go on it so they can find out medical information. So the spying on the student becomes spying on the student's family. So, so that has to stop entirely. And then the fourth right, and a lot of one, students, a lot of students are using their parents' laptop at this point anyway. Absolutely. So, absolutely. so whatever yeah, app they're well, using, yeah, yeah, could be used to actually spy on the entire family. Yeah, and it, and it absolutely does, and it has, and we've seen that in the past. And then the, the fourth step is, you know, we need to make sure that, that these requests are actually being followed. So it is very critical that after this crisis is over that there is um, approved auditing in place so we can make sure that the, that the promises and agreements made by these companies to protect student privacy and not spy on them are actually adhered to. I think these are great points. Uh, one other that I would I would add is if parents do give their consent to these companies keeping their children's data, it should be informed consent. In other words, that should be completely transparent on the part of these companies exactly what data is being collected and who else it's being shared with for what purposes. Because it's yeah, very easy to get parents to consent. Great- yeah, without really knowing what the implications of that consent may be. Yeah, and that, that's actually that's a really good point because that is a, a trick that ed tech companies and tech companies in general uh, uh, do. They, 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 uh, they solicit and receive uninformed consent. And, and I would mm-hmm. say, and I'm sure you would agree, uninformed consent is not consent at all. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of times they will they will stick their consent to collect your data on page like 24 of a 60 page user agreement that you sign when you originally do a program. That's not consent. It's not informed consent. And so therefore, it's not consent. And there are these all these click wrap agreements, which just say, you know, you accept the terms and conditions and you don't even necessarily read them because they're too long and complicated. I've seen further um, complications of this with um, certain companies like the College Board that doesn't just make you read one long document, but may have up to eight different documents that um, go into details and different details about the collection of data and its disclosure. And so they're yeah, actually having seen, these privacy the- centers now where literally there will be eight different documents that you have to read, and some of them have information in them that contradicts other documents in the privacy center. So it's, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, and I've actually seen a report, and I, I may be slightly off on the years here, but a report that said something like if, if people actually took the time to read all the user agreements that they're required to read during the course of their lifetime, it would take about 70 years. <laughs> so it's, it's not even possible 
for people yeah. to read these user agreements. I mean, I, I am the ACLU's privacy guy, and I don't read those user agreements. Who has the time? So, yeah, so you, user agreements, the, the concept of, of getting informed consent from a user agreement is, is I, I think, a, a, a ridiculous fallacy. So I, I, I sometimes get these questions from people about, you know, the, the purpose of, of my organization and why we're so concerned about this issue of student privacy. And why do we really care? Because what is it that we are so um, passionate about protecting? So I would really love you to go into a little bit about um, explaining what the risks are involved if personal student data is breached or misused by these companies. Sure, sure. So, so there's, you know, there's different levels of problems caused by, by an absence of privacy for students. Some is a very immediate risk. And so the example that I would give there would be for undocumented students, right? For an undocumented student, a student giving personal information away about yourself or your family especially with the, you know, the current administration in place on the federal level, can literally risk your family's ability to live in their homes in the United States, right? So, so, so that sort of privacy risk where that's not taken care of can exclude undocumented students from participating in education. So that's kind of a, an immediate example. But in the long run, there are also a lot of other examples where – Sucking up data on students can be misused against them. And I'll, I'll give you, you know, just a couple of examples. One, you know, you can have a student who, you know, in the, in the uh, you know, 11th and 12th grade is, is applying to colleges. They end up, you know, in, let's say, a, a, a final 10 or final 20 list for a college they really want to get into um, with other students. And let's say there's two or three spots available. And everyone kind of looks the same based on the application they've been given. Well, schools can go to companies that say, hey, our business is to provide you with information that you don't get on their application. And so the school goes ahead and for a fairly reasonable fee buys access to this database and they find out that, you know, Joe Blow, when, when, uh, when he was in second grade, had some disciplinary problems, right? Or struggled in a key subject that, that, uh, that the student is applying to get into a school. So they're applying to MIT, and it says they struggled in science or math. And the school may say, okay, you're out, because we're trying to distinguish. We've got a few spots left. This is a, a red flag or at a minimum a yellow flag. You're, you're gone. And, again, based on something a student did when they were a kid. You can also imagine going forward when, when you're applying for car insurance or a home loan, if they're like, well, you know, we're trying to figure out if, if, as an insurance company if you're worth the risk or as a bank if you're worth the home loan risk. And they go and they say, oh, you know, this is a student who perhaps didn't perform well academically or this is a student who applied for, for free lunch. And our algorithms tell us that students who apply for free lunch are 1% more likely to default on a loan. And so they end up having to pay higher rates for insurance or for a loan or maybe they get rejected altogether because these companies who are – you know, they're not moral companies. They're not ethical companies. They're, they're in there to make profits. 
their business model and their algorithms tell them our job is to assess risk. And the more data we can get that tells us about whether you're a higher risk or not, the better. So they'll spend $25,000 to get access to a database. And from that database and from things that may have happened in a kid's life in elementary school, they're going to decide to charge you higher insurance premiums, higher home loan rates, or reject you altogether. And that's just two of probably hundreds of examples that one could come up with. Right. I just wanted to point out that, in addition, um, a child's health records are often collected at the school level with very sensitive information, including a child's um, psychological health, um, their, their, their medical records in terms of maybe having allergies or epilepsy or other kinds of disabilities. And those records, if they're, if they're collected by um, the school, do not, um, are not subject to HIPAA, but are subject to FERPA, which has much weaker privacy and security controls. In fact, in FERPA, there's no uh, security requirements at all in terms of uh, the safety of this data from being breached um, inadvertently, um, either because, um, you know, it's not encrypted or someone um, fishes into um, and illegally gains access to student records. And um, a lot of this information has been breached. In fact, schools are the second most usual target for um, breaching and ransomware now, as the FBI has warned. And so this is a real issue for parents, especially whose children have various health issues and disabilities. Another... Yeah, and, I, um, and I think that... Yeah. I'm just going to say that, you know, I think that one, just, just, just to, again, to, for, for framing for, for your listeners, what we're talking about today and what we really need to think about today is whether or not we should live in a world where parents and children have to choose between being able to receive an education at home and protecting their privacy, right? And, and in the absence of the rules that, that we are advocating for, uh, that's the choice they're going to have to make. They cannot pick privacy and education. They have to pick privacy or education. And that should absolutely not be the, the world that we live in, especially now when, when, when students literally feel like they have no choice but to accept using these remote learning platforms. Right. And often during a regular school year, kids are already being assigned these platforms and their data is being collected in all sorts of electronic commercial programs that parents are not being given the option to reject. And so they Correct. are essentially being being forced to make um, that choice um, ordinarily. Another issue that, you know, we've been concerned about is the issue of identity theft. And it turns out that kids' data on the black market is worth a lot more than adult um, data for the purposes of identity theft because they don't have negative credit ratings. And so if you're a parent who's ever been faced with the nightmare of trying to deal with either your own or your child's um, identity being being stolen and the numerous problems that that has that causes, you'll realize that th this information really needs to be very, very carefully protected. Um, yeah, and, and another other, reason why student yeah, data is so valuable is, you know, you know, if, if someone gets a, a, a dossier, develops a dossier of information on you or I, 
then that is a dossier that may be good for them that they can monetize for 20 or 30 years, maybe 40 if we're lucky, right? For, for kids, you're looking at 70, 80 years of data that you, you can monetize. And so simply, you know, actuarial tables looking for lifespan shows you why kids' data is the most valuable because you can use it and resell it and monetize it for the longest period of time. Right, right. And there is a huge amount of, of kids' data available um, by these these companies that do nothing but buy and sell student data already. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that it's out there, and but it needs to be better protected. Uh, recently in New York City, um, there was a big controversy because a lot of teachers had moved to using Zoom, which is a video conferencing tool that's very easy to use. And it was popular among teachers and students and their parents. And then the chancellor um, came along and said, you have to stop using Zoom because it does not comply to the state student privacy law, which actually was passed in 2014 as a result of the controversy over in Bloom. And um, one public official actually said, was, was very upset about this, and he said, oh, well, they have their, our kids' data anyway already, so what difference does it make? Uh, do you have any thoughts about the controversy over Zoom? Because it seems like almost every day something else comes out about this platform, which is, which is disturbing. Yeah, so I would say a couple things. First of all, you know, it, I have a visceral reaction to anyone who ever says, oh, the data's already out there, so um, <laughs> so I guess mm-hmm. we shouldn't care about privacy anymore. That's just flat wrong. If, if their point is we have done a terrible job protecting student data privacy to this point, granted, I'll give you that. But the idea is that, you know, I will tell you just for a fact, you have new kids coming into the education system every single year. Their privacy has not yet been compromised. So the idea that we should throw up our hands now at this point because we've we've achieved some sort of 100% lack of privacy saturation point, I think is wildly irresponsible. But I have also heard people say that they say privacy all the time. I've got nothing to hide. It's already out there, so I should stop caring. That's that's I think in this instance he was talking about the fact that teachers had used Zoom for one or two weeks. And so the company was (laughs) – was collecting and, and misusing the, the data of New York City students. It was too late to do anything about it. Yeah, well, you know, if someone, if someone cuts themselves very severely and they're bleeding, I would never say, well, you've already been bleeding for 10 minutes. Let's not bother to stop it. <laughs> right, um, right, right. So, but, but with respect to Zoom in particular, I'll tell you something that, that's interesting to me. So, again, the, the organization I work for, the ACLU, actually – uses Zoom um, through a paid-for premium account, right? And so, so mm-hmm. we actually have as part of that premium account um, better, if not, if not imperfect, but much better privacy protections because of that premium account. The fact that Zoom basically says, if you don't pay us, you don't get the privacy, I think is, is absurd. Um, I, I would say that, that, you know, from the communications coming out of Zoom, um, I would say on some level, um, and again, I think this is, you see this with companies like Facebook as well, you know, now that they've gotten caught, there is a bit of public shame. The extent to which it's genuine versus, oh, this could hurt us commercially, I, I can't legitimately say. But Zoom has the ability to offer far more pr- privacy protective um, mechanisms within their service. The fact that they 
did not do so um, for people who didn't give them money, I think is is very irresponsible. Uh, and I think it is incumbent upon uh, Zoom uh, to to say that while we may charge you for additional functionality, um, we should not be charging you for, for privacy protection. That is something that mm-hmm. every single Zoom member should get. Um, and it should never have been the case that Zoom was made available to the public at large for free, but in the absence of privacy protections unless they pay for them. That's not that's not being a responsible corporate citizen. Right. Well, we uh, one of the one of the BOCES in upstate New York, which um, is an administrative collection of of school districts, has signed a a new a contract with Zoom, which, which any district can can opt into, which supposedly does comply with state law. We're not 100 percent sure of that yet. We have questions about the encryption level of the platform, but it does say that they will delete the data at the end of the year, all the student data upon demand, which I think is a good step forward, at least in complying with some of, of some of what you talked about in your um, ACLU piece. Um, this is Laney Hameson on WBAI 99.5 with Talk Out of School. Um, we're talking to Chad Marlowe of the ACLU about student privacy and the move towards remote learning. We would like to open up the phone lines if people have questions and concerns, specifically on the issue of online learning and student privacy. You can call us at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Um, Chad, I have a couple of other questions um, that I really are very concerned about myself, which is, one, the lack of training given to teachers on how to use these tools responsibly. Um, the state law and the regs now do require in New York and elsewhere that teachers be trained on the issue of protecting student privacy and yet we found that very, very few teachers have been trained on the on this issue, either in New York City or elsewhere in the state or country. And the more I look into it in terms of Zoom and other apps, the more I realize that a big part of, of protecting kids' privacy is not just the app they're using, but how you use it. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I think you're I think you're exactly right. And, you know, we we you and I and our organizations have been talking about this issue for a very long time. Um, I think what's going on now has 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 highlighted it. But I would say that, you know, I often think about participants um, in in any sort of kind of government or private activity like education and really think about where they sit and where responsibilities lie. And, and I think that, you know, the, the, the challenge when you look at schools and you look at teachers is they are principally in the education business, right? And so when they are, you know, a company comes, it's trying to make money off of them. And all they do is tell them, you know, here's how we think this is going to be better for your kid's education. They often can become very myopic about that, right? They just think, oh, you know, you are presenting me with an opportunity to provide a better quality education to my kids. I'm buying your sales pitch. And again, whether the sales pitch is legitimate or not is on a company by company basis. And then they just go ahead and run with it. Schools and teachers are kind of not in their fiber privacy experts. 
right? That's not what they think about. And so, uh, so it is essential that that the concern about privacy is injected into their thought process, right? And one way that you do that is by mandating teacher training around the importance of student privacy and and what to look for. It's almost like the way teachers teach kids about media literacy. We need to teach our teachers about privacy literacy, right? So they know what to look for. We also need to be educating school districts. So we don't just have to train the teachers in kind of the – the, the point of service delivery with the kids about privacy, but we need to better train school administrators and principals about what they need to look for in programs and in contracts when they are agreeing to, to kind of onboard educational applications. And so greater kind of media literacy, but in the privacy context, privacy literacy, and, and strong teacher training on, on how to use the individual devices and programs, I think is critical. Now, needless to say, the absolute worst time to try to implement something like that is during a pandemic, right? <laughs> but the reason why we are confronted with this problem now is because, to be frank, Many, many schools and school districts did not take what we were saying seriously for the last five-plus years. Um, and so right. here we I are. Just wanted, but, yeah. but, but you don't want to yeah. double down on a mistake by saying, oh, well, it's too late. We should have done it, but we didn't. I guess it is what it is. You can always stop the bleeding. You can always make things better. And so I think that's something that schools need to be thinking about now. But even once this pandemic is over, we don't want to go back to the old status quo where student privacy was an afterthought uh, in, in remote learning and using educational apps. Absolutely. I just wanted to mention that our coalition, the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy, along with Badass Teachers, did put out an educator toolkit for student and teacher privacy that is on our website that I encourage uh, teachers to look at. It has some hints in there and some important guidance, one of which is never to use a click wrap agreement um, freemium tool because often though that tool seems it's for free, it's really making money often off of the student data in one way or another. And um, you don't know when you click on that agreement what the security is being used to protect the data, whether it's being sold or, or used for advertising purposes, and whether it even really complies with um, your state law. So we encourage uh, teachers not to do that unless there's been a process where these specific programs have been uh, pre-approved by the district already. And there's other information in there that I um, really, really um, encourage uh, teachers to take a look at. I think we do. Yeah, that, that's a, a really call. good one. I just want to highlight yeah. one thing that you said because it's yeah, so sure. critically important. It bears repeating, which is if you're a school and you're getting a product that they say is free, it yeah. basically that means you're not giving them money, but it's not free. You are giving them something very. Very few things in life are free. Um, and if, if, a, if a company comes to you and says, hey, this app is free, the next question you need to ask is, okay, how am I really paying for this? And a lot of times you are paying for it in student data, which can then be monetized to make money. 
And that's the way they're getting the money. So I, I think that's such a superb point. Very, very few things are free. And in the educational technology context, when something is quote-unquote free, it often means they're collecting data in order to make money instead of just actual currency. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think we do have a caller. Um, WBAI, you're on the air. Can you say your name, where you're from, and what your question is for Chad Marlowe of the ACLU? Hi, guys. Uh, This is Lisa from Westchester. Um, I absolutely love this program, and it's so needed. And the fact that we're in this pandemic now and we're doing all this distance learning, it's needed even more. So we can't wait until it ends. we got to do it now. Um, For example, our district just rolled out and said, oh, we've got um, this company that that allowed us to have free tutoring for, um, for SATs online. And my email back to them is, what are you telling me? You just let the doors open to them for the whole district. Like, it's not free. When they tell you it's free, they're just going to be getting everybody's information. You know, and they they, they didn't even answer me because it's like, it, oh, what are you talking about? You know, you just, you're just this person that's always concerned about the ulterior motives. So, so my question is, how do we... Who in the school district should be the person, the point person who is on top of this type of security concern so that somebody's looking at it, not just that the teachers are looking at a website and, you know, individually, but how do we get it so that it's district-wide? They spend a lot of money on companies now, like an all-terrorist company. Oh, we gotta, we got to do drills for an active shooter. Um, but meanwhile, the the barn door is left open for these companies to take all the information and run with it. And, and, and the system that they have, my son can't send me an email, and I can't send him an email on his school email. And right now we need to send each other emails so I can print something out for him. And, and all of that part is blocked. The people who need access don't have it. And the people who shouldn't have access have full access. That's a great question. Yeah, so, Chad, so, do, you, do, so, you, do you have advice on that? I do. First, I want to say to the caller to, to, to thank you for your, your, your vigilance and for, for standing up for, you know, when you stand up for your child and your family, you're standing up for all children and all families. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I, have, I have seen in, in terms of, of, you know, student privacy and other protections nationwide is it is often the work of a single parent who starts the movement Towards a, towards a better system and better rules. And so the fact that you are sending that email is extremely significant because that's how change starts. So in terms of, of, of who can actually make the change and put the policies in place, I, I think that it, it rises up the chain. There's not a single answer. You can, you can certainly engage your school's principal who has a certain flexibility over what things are and are not used in the school. In certain cases where they do not, you may have to actually raise it up to, you know, the superintendent of your school district. You can raise it up to, you know, certain places and schools are largely run by by PTA-type organizations or school boards. You may have to raise it there. I think in the course of, of what we're going through right now in a pandemic where I think government responsibilities higher up the chain are, are broadened, it is certainly reasonable 
to turn to the governor of your state, here's the governor of New York, and say, you need to, 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 to put forth an executive order that says we're not going to do X in remote learning unless we receive the following protections. And so I, what I would say to you is, is, in a way, it's almost a spaghetti against the wall thing. Engage your principal. Engage your district superintendent. Engage your school board. Engage the governor. Engage anyone you can because all of them have the ability to make things better. Uh, and you don't necessarily know, you know, where that spaghetti is going to stick. So I would say to the extent you can, advocate as broadly as you can uh, and, and hope one of them will actually step up to the plate for your kids. Yeah, so um, a couple of things. First of all, we also put out a parent toolkit for student privacy, which has some really helpful hints about how to advocate for your child and organize with other parents, and also some questions you can ask your principal about specific um, ed ed tech tools and how the data is being um, disclosed and protected. But beyond that, I think what the caller may have been asking about is who should be in charge at the district level. Now, right now, some districts have chief privacy officers. I know New York City does. I think more should, people whose sole job it is to pay attention to this issue. But generally speaking, what we found is that chief information officers are usually in charge of privacy at the district level. And so if you can find out who your chief information officer is, um, that person may be more able to answer your questions and respond to your concerns. But I do agree with Chad that um, advocacy is important in general. And in general, um, we do advise parents that they start with principal, um, but they also reach out to other parents to see if you can find other parents that share your concerns because um, one parent is a, is a nuisance to a principal, but a group of parents is a serious problem that they generally have to respond to one way or another. So yeah, I think that's um, right. And you know, one more thing to add, actually, I was I was at a, a, a forum last year at South by Southwest EDU, uh, and one of the people on the panel with me, uh, and unfortunately I can't remember what it was. He represented a fairly large district, not not in New York, um, as kind of their their chief technology officer. And one of the points that he made that I think really is smart and right is that. None of these educational tools and apps should be rolled out without first in, investing in engaging parents, right? They, they should, mm -hmm. You shouldn't just announce that you're rolling them out. You should have meetings in which you explain what they do and you answer questions, and that will enable the school to receive valuable feedback from parents that they can then incorporate into their thinking and even their potential contracts when they use these applications. The worst thing you can do, he said, and I fully agree with him, is to, is to decide to use these things in secret and then just drop them on the parents and the children. If you, and it's just good sound policy and it will make you a better educational leader to engage the community in, in, in here, I mean the educational community, the parents and the students and even the teachers as well, um, about what apps you are considering using to, to provide information and get feedback before you roll them out. Because I think there's opportunities in doing that to, to really hear concerns and to become smarter about the way you may decide to roll it out in the future. 
Yeah, I think that that's a good advice for anything, any policy or practice that a school or a school district engages in. Um, it's it's really good to get the input of parents. Unfortunately, that often, too often, doesn't happen. Uh, we have another call on the line. Um, WBAI, you're on the air. Can you say your name, where you're from, and what your question is for Hi, Chad Marlowe of the ACLU? Hi, good morning. Hi, Chad. Hi, Hi, producer. Um, what's your take on Hangouts Google? Because that's what the DOE is making us change to from Zoom. What's your take on that? First, yeah, can you so, say your so, name so, and where so you're I, from? I, are you you're are you a parent in New York City? I'm I'm a director and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And my name okay, is Deborah. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. Thank you, well, Deborah. Go on, Chad. Yes. So 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 you know again. So I would say you know that. The, you know, Google Hangouts or any of these other uh, other systems, um, the the extent to which they're more or less privacy protective works on a variety of levels. Some of which, to be honest, are are a, are a technological level that that I have to rely on technologists at the ACLU to try to get through to see what data they are and are not collecting. Google, in in my personal opinion, is not. Uh, a great steward of, of, of privacy. Now, they have some, if you read their, their privacy rules, they seem fairly good, but the way that they operate in the educational space, I have seen some practices uh, that, that raise my eyebrows. And so, you know, the, the Google is as interested in collecting student data as any other company. Um, what restrictions they have on, on the particular Google Hangout uh, app in terms of the actual functionality of, of their software is something that we have not yet had time to drill down to. But that is why having the right policies in place and the right rules in the place is, is the best approach. Because in the absence of them, you have to take individual apps, you know, here we're talking about kind of remote video audio learning apps, and kind of try to pick the best one and hope that it's hitting the standards you want based on what that company has chosen the privacy standard should be. And then you kind of take it as it is. Um, if you actually have policies in place and laws in place that you then send to these companies and say, here's what you have to meet, that is going to provide you a far greater de degree of comfort and privacy protections where you and I uh, and most other people don't have the ability to actually look at the code uh, that operates the system and figure out exactly what it's doing. That's that's a task that most of us don't, don't have the ability to do. And so, uh, so I would say that you know, to the extent that Google Hangouts may have more privacy protections than Zoom currently has, I don't have any reason to doubt that statement. But more does not necessarily equate to good or great privacy protection. It just means better. So do I believe that Google Hangouts is better? I have no reason to doubt it. But does that make me think it's good or great in protecting student privacy? Not necessarily. So one of, a, one of the, the co-chairs of my organization actually has done a deep dive into Google um, Apps for Education and has found that in the past um, they have been collecting all sorts of data like your child's geolocation and even sometimes voice data. And it all depends on the default settings that you're using for Google Apps and for your Google account. So we have an in-depth 
um, list of instructions on our Parent Coalition for Student Privacy website on how to set the default settings for the Google account so it will not collect a lot of personal data that it should not be collecting anyway. So I really do um, um, encourage you to go to, to our website to check that out. Um, right now, the DOE says they have a contract with Google that complies with state law. We have not seen that contract, so we don't know whether that's true. And again, it may de depend on the, the settings um, that you are using on your laptop or device, which are critical. Um, yeah, and, and, I you think know, we have, yeah, go on. I'm sorry, I just want to say, you know, you, you talked earlier, uh, earlier about the importance of enforcement, and I think this is a, a very uh, critical time just to highlight that one more time. You know, Google has been caught on multiple occasions in the past violating student privacy, and in fact, uh, uh, there is a current lawsuit pending in Mississippi by the Attorney General of Mississippi against Google for violating student privacy uh, uh, rules and laws. So, um, so I think it is very critical, even having the right tools in place, uh, that there is kind of constant vigilance to make sure that those companies are abiding by their own rules and laws, because unfortunately, uh, there's plenty of evidence that they don't. Yeah, and one of the problems with both the state law and the federal law is that parents cannot sue if their child's privacy has been um, violated, the government has to take action one way or another. And too often we found at the state and the federal level that the government is very reluctant to do so. So that's another problem that is really critical. There's no use in having federal um, laws or state laws if no one's going to enforce them. We hope for more action from the governor, from the attorney general, and from local officials to make sure that these agreements are being um, um, are being enforced. Um, we're coming to the end of the show. Unfortunately, we cannot take any more calls. I really want to thank you, Chad, for coming on and spending some time with us when I know you have multiple responsibilities, especially now in terms of your job and in terms of your kids at home. Um, I wish you all the luck in the world, um, and I hope that maybe you can come back and talk to us again later in the year when more of these issues have emerged. Would that be possible? Yes, absolutely. And I just wanted to take just a quick moment to thank thank you for, for, for your time to appear on the show and all your listeners. And, and I want to just specifically just take a moment, as we all should, uh, to thank you know all of the people who are you know risking their lives on a daily basis uh, so we can continue to, to exist and get through this. You know, people all, all the time talk about the you know, medical professionals, and, and God bless all of them for their work, but also to pr particularly highlight and thank, you know, all of the helpers out there, you know, the grocery store workers, the delivery people uh, who, who are doing their best for us. It just it would seem uh, uh, in very poor taste nowadays to not thank them every opportunity we get. Uh, and so uh, if I can use this opportunity just to thank all of them for all that they do for us, they are our real heroes. They are. They are, and, and very, very courageous and essential to what we're doing. This is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM. Our show is available as a podcast, but in any case, please consider becoming a WBAI buddy to Talk Out of School by logging into givetowbai.org or calling 516-620-3602. I hope you'll join us next Wednesday for another Talk Out of School. Until then, please be careful and please be safe. Thanks so much for listening.